Only by grace can we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only by grace can we stand in that faith. And only by God's grace can we do this thing called Christianity. Right? Amen. We're going to see that today in Acts chapter 15, if you want to turn there. Acts is all about the gospel, the gospel going out. But what happens when the gospel goes out, and we know this to be true, is opposition happens. It's a difficult thing. It's going re- to face barriers. It's going to face opposition. It's going to face difficult times. Not everybody's going to be excited about the fact that the gospel is going out. Now, to Gentiles of all people, those pagan idolaters now want to follow Jesus Christ. Wow, really? Do we want to let them in? That's really the question that's going to be dealt with today. Questions and issues are going to arise. In one of the commentaries, there's a gentleman named Mr. Williams, and he says this, it was very difficult for some Jewish Christians to accept that Gentiles could be brought into the church as equal members without first coming through the law of Moses. It was one thing to accept the occasional God-fearer into the church, someone already in sympathy with Jewish ways. It was quite another to welcome large numbers of Gentiles who had no regard for the law and no intention of keeping it. It's a whole different audience here. So how, as a Jewish person, a Jewish believer, how do you open up your arms and say, welcome into the congregation of Christ? That's the challenge. There are really two things at stake here. Number one, in the Jewish mind and heart, there was a little sense that this was unfair. They had been following God and doing everything that he'd asked of them for thousands of years, and now everything has changed here. You don't have to do that anymore. These people, these Gentiles, are just welcome in by faith alone, by simply believing Jesus Christ, and it just didn't seem fair. You know, Jesus told a parable in the book of Luke, chapter 15. It was the parable of the three lost items, but the third one is the son, the prodigal. And there's two sons in that story. There's the prodigal son that goes out and just blows everything. He is a pagan sinner, but he repents and comes home, and the arms of the father are open for him. But there's another son in that story. That's the elder brother. He was there, he didn't run away, he was doing everything right, and then when this younger little brat comes home, the father receives him as if nothing had happened, and there's a big celebration and a party, and these elder brothers out in the field complaining and arguing and refusing to go in and celebrate. That was the attitude of some of the Jewish believers. It was unfair to that all of a sudden all these laws are taken out and people can just enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone. But they also feared that with an increasingly Gentile church, Jewish culture, traditions, and influence would be lost. We're all that way, aren't we, in a sense? We, we're, we take pride in our traditions and who we are as a people. Americans are no different, okay? And so when people come in to this country from other places, Sometimes there's that fear that rises up in our soul. We're losing some of what it is that makes us who we are as people, and there's that pride that's there. It's going to be lost. What a terrible thing. 
So you can begin to understand a little bit. You know, change is hard, change takes time, and with change comes opposition. I was watching the Today Show just this last week. This year is the 100, or yeah, the 100th year anniversary of the opening of the Negro Leagues baseball. Now why is that important? Well, in those days, white people were allowed to play baseball, and there was a league for them, and they had several teams, and they were competing, but people of color were not allowed to play America's pastime. And so they started, 100 years ago this year, they started the Negroes Baseball League, where people of color now could play baseball, earn some money, just like those people that were white were able to do. So there was this separation, white and non-white, playing baseball in two different leagues. Then, In 1947, Jackie Robinson, huge, he broke the color barrier. He signed a contract to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Wow, so that wasn't easy. You can imagine the reception that he received from the fans, from fellow players, from players on other teams as he traveled with the team. He wasn't really equal with them. He wasn't. He, he got to play, but not on the same level as the other players. But it was a small step, and it was a good step in the right direction. In the year, and I remember watching this game in 1974. I remember watching this in my home, but Hank Aaron hit that home run, number 715, and he broke Babe's record. He broke a record that had been standing forever, and people thought it would never be broken. And it was by a white player. And now an African-American player had broken that record. So with that, should have been a case for celebration and a wonderful thing in his life. And as they were interviewing him on the Today Show, he said, those were some of the hardest days of my life. I wanted to celebrate, It it was an incredible feat, but he said the hate mail that I was receiving from people by the thousands was coming into him. Change isn't always embraced, it takes time, and with any kind of change, there's gonna be opposition. That's what we're gonna see today. Let's read Acts chapter 15, the first five verses to start off. Gospel accuracy, as the gospel expands, it's it's gonna be important that it's accurate that it's clear, that it's well defended. And here's what happens. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to by the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. 
Paul and Barnabas are going to travel a pretty good distance to defend the accuracy of the gospel. And it's going to be important that they do this. Tim Keller once said this, and I thought it was good. He says, if Christianity is false, it is of no importance. If it is true, it is of infinite importance. But he says, the one thing Christianity could not be is moderately important. Mm, It had to be accurate. It had to be defined clearly. It had to be defended from some of the false teaching that was going on. Church councils down through our church history have been a part, an important part, of guarding what is true. And we've had many of them in the early period of the church. In 300s, 400s, 500s, there were seven of these church councils. One of them was called the Council of Nicaea. Emperor Constantine called the church leaders together. And it was named after the city in which they did this. It was in 325 A.D. And at that council... They confirm the deity of Jesus Christ along with the Trinity, the fact that there is God the Father, there is God the Son, there is God the Holy Spirit. Because there was false teaching afoot that said Jesus was not God, that he was a created being. So Constantine called all the church leaders together and what does God's word say? What is true? And they formed a creed that came out of that, that that supported the deity of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Hugely important, right? Council of Carthage came later in 397 AD. At this council, the canon of scripture, the 66 books that we have in our Bibles today were accepted as God's word. And some of the books that were being, kind of wanted to be included in there were were tossed out. The apocryphal books were excluded from the word of God for many reasons doctrinal error, they weren't written by one of the apostles or someone associated with the apostles. There were reasons why they got rid of those extra books, but they held tight to the canon of Scripture, the 66 that we now have. That was very important because they were defending God's Word and the truth that was in God's Word. Then came along the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. This sounds really boring, huh? If you're a history person, these are huge because... All of these had important truths. Chalcedon took the the person of Jesus Christ. And again, there was some false teaching that was getting passed around. Is he man? Is he God? Is he a little bit of both? After the Council of Chalcedon, it was determined from Scripture and from biblical truth that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Hypostatic union, it's called, at the same time. So he's not a mixture of both. He's not one more than the other. He is fully both at one time. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Those are important stands. What we have here is the first council of the church here in Acts 15. The the issue here is, and maybe the most important issue, is how is a person saved? How does a person come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? That issue is huge, is it not? and maybe the most important one of all. So this kind of issue could forever, if you think about it, it had to be decided here because it could forever split the church. You could have some saying faith alone and the other half of the church saying no, it's through the law of Moses and a list of other things. You've got two churches. There needed to be unity in this. There could be 
we're over here and we're first class citizens because we're doing this. They're over here and they've kind of agreed on this, so they're kind of second class. That kind of thing couldn't happen. It couldn't be, take place here. And so this council is going to determine once and, for, once and for all, at least for a while, this issue continues to come up, but for right now, how, how is a person saved? And is there distinctions within the church or is there equal membership in the body of Christ? Now there's going to be two opposing groups. Verse 1, the Judaizers. These are the people that came from Jerusalem up north to Antioch and said you needed to, law was required for salvation. You cannot be saved unless you do the law of Moses. These are false teachers. They're outside the church. They're apart from the church. They're unbelievers who held strongly to the laws of Moses and rejected Christ. So there they are. They've been there all along. They've been chasing Paul and Barnabas through his first missionary journey in chapters 13, 14, and they're back again. They're causing problem. So that's one set of people. This vital issue couldn't be settled in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas decided it needed to be settled down in Jerusalem where the apostles, where the elders, and the leaders of the church were. And so they took it and they headed south. The Judaizers were one. Galatians 3, verse 11. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. It's not about following the law. It's about trusting Jesus Christ. It's by faith. But there was another group in verse 5. It talks about a different group. It says, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, Gentiles must be circumcised, required to keep the law of Moses. They were saying the law was required after salvation, not for salvation, but after salvation. It was still important. These were believers. These were people who had accepted the Messiah, Jesus, as the Christ. They were believers, it says, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So they had salvation in the sense of they believed in the Messiah. They believed that he had died, that he had risen from the dead. But they argued that faith in Christ needed to be alongside keeping of the law and the Old Testament law together. It was both. It was Christ plus the law. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish, Paul says to the Galatian Christians. He says, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? What he's saying is this. You started out by faith, trusting the Holy Spirit, new birth. That's how you started. Now that you're a Christian, are you trying to earn it by means of the flesh? Start by faith, but man, work hard. <laughs> Strive after it. Do this. Here's the list, and make sure you're doing it, okay? That doesn't work. That's foolishness. That's not the way that God intended it. He intended it to start by faith and to continue by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It was begun by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Not by, oh man, I'm doing my best. That's not what it's about. And that's what Paul wanted them to understand. 
Just as Paul and Barnabas did not allow the Gentile converts to kind of continue to worship their gods and just kind of bring Jesus in with them, he's not going to allow the Jewish people to continue to say the law is important and mix in Jesus with that. It's one of it's one or the other. You've got to go one way or the other here. It's not Jesus Christ plus. I came across this statement, and Lenski is the gentleman's name, and I thought this was really good. To add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation, say circumcision or any human work of any kind, is to deny that Christ is the complete Savior, is to put something human on a par with him, yea, to make it the crowning point. That is fatal. A bridge to heaven that is built of 99 one-hundredths of Christ and even only one one-hundredths of anything human breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Wow, this is serious stuff, isn't it? Even if Christ be thought of as carrying us 999 miles of the way and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still far away. It's never Christ plus thing. It's Christ alone. 100%. It's Him. Not on my own merit. Not by my own works. I'm not trusting in myself for this. It's finished. That's what Jesus says. It's done. It's complete. He is our complete Savior. All other religions, if you think about it, give us advice. How do you live this life? Well, how do you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? It's only Christianity that gives us good news. It's already done. It's an invitation. It's something to be received rather than achieved. You see the difference? That's Christianity versus anything else that you put out there on the marketplace of religions. It's an invitation. Our tendency today, and this is a subtle one, is to say, yeah, I know I came to Christ through faith. Yes, and I believe that. I know Scripture teaches that. I know it's true. But subtly be drawn into this thinking that I still need to be doing things to please God on my own. I'm still working hard over here because I'm not really quite sure that it's complete. I'm not really quite sure if it's fully accepted. Can I really please God here? And that's my, I'm striving to please him. In reality, I am accepted in the beloved. I am righteous in Christ. That is my identity, that's who I am. Then from that, out of my identity, I walk, trusting him and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's the subtlety sometimes of Christian legalists. Yeah, they accept Christ. Yeah, it's salvation by grace alone, but man, you better be working hard and you better be doing these things. List, 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 right? Instead of, okay, let's just, let's trust Christ. Let's trust him. Let's just follow him. Gospel accuracy. So three groups or three people are gonna step up and give testimony to the truth of the gospel. From verses 6 to 18, we have Peter, we have Paul and Barnabas, and we're going to see James present proof that salvation is by grace alone through faith. So here's what they say. 
The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter gets up first. He got up, he addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles must hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. There's not an us and them thing here. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that we, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. There's the grand statement, Peter says, the truth. The whole assembly became silent and next came up next Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and the wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. The stories, the missionary journey number one, what happened, how God's worked, how God got their attention, how they came to faith. When they finished, witness number three, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After all this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins and I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. We have three witnesses here to the reality and the truth that it's by faith alone. It's by God's grace that we're saved, not by works. Peter starts out and he says there's really a threefold work of God that God did. Verse 7, he said, God chose me to present the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember chapter 10 where he's in Joppa? He sees the vision where the sheets like it was like a sheet from heaven comes down full of all kinds of living creatures, crawling things, and God says, kill and eat. Then God opened up his mind to what was going on in his plan, how he wanted to reach out, and he instructed him to go to Caesarea and meet Cornelius, this Roman centurion, this Gentile, and bring the gospel. Peter said, remember that story? Remember how I told you what had happened? That was God's work. Peter says, trust me on this one. It was way outside my box, but God said, I want you to do this. Verse eight, he says, just like us, God gave them the Holy Spirit. I witnessed it. The Holy Spirit came on them just like the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews and the Samaritans and now the Gentile people. We're all on equal footing here. God is at work amongst all of us. And then verse nine, he purified their hearts through faith, not the law. In Peter's vision in Acts 10, God says to Peter, do not call anything unclean that God has made clean. Now in Peter's mind and what he had seen was food. God was saying, don't call anything unclean, food-wise, that I've made clean. But in reality, God was speaking beyond just the food. It was more than just the food, it was the people, the Gentile people. God was saying to Peter, don't call them unclean because I've made them clean. There's been a work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives and I have purified them, Peter. 
they're clean. Don't call them unclean anymore. That's not the way it's going to work. His question, why put a yoke on them? A lot of things. Jews weren't, Jews weren't able to keep the law either. Some did pretty good jobs. Some did better than others. But the reality is none of them kept it completely. They all failed at some point. The law didn't show them their ability to keep the law, but rather their inability. And really that was the point, wasn't it? You can't do this. Hence, you need a Savior that's coming. In Christ, our yoke of sin, guilt, and shame are taken away. This is freedom now. It's not about putting another yoke on them. That's not what God intends. Law didn't save the Jews. It won't save the Gentiles either. That's what Peter's saying. It didn't work back then to save them. Brought them in a relationship with God is what was, God was asking of them. They were following in faith. But in reality, it's always been through faith. Look back to Abraham before the law even existed. It was through faith that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why do you try to test God, he says. What's he, what's he mean by that? Well, I think a couple things. Number one, in light of the finished work of Christ, you're insulting God to try to add on to and add things in requirement of what's already been given to you in the finished work of Jesus. But also, testing God means you're going against what he's clearly told you to do. And, and you look in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were accused of putting God to the test, they were going against what God had clearly revealed them to do. God is clearly revealing this. Why are you trying to go against it? It's not going to work. You're testing. You're putting God to the test. Stop. In summary, Peter says, they received the Holy Spirit. They were saved by faith alone, just as we, the Jews. If God received them, so should we. That's, that's his message. Just a quick note on Peter. Peter's no longer heard from in the book of Acts. This is the last time his name will be mentioned from here to the end of the book. Does that mean he's not busy? Does that mean he's not doing things for God? Absolutely not. It just means that Luke chooses not to include him in the story because really the focus now is going to be on what's going on with Paul, Silas, Timothy, etc. as they go out to the Gentiles. But this is it. Peter kind of steps off the stage and Luke is in a sense saying that his last act in the book of Acts is legitimizing the gospel message to the Gentiles. And then it's like he just steps off the stage into the background as Paul and Barnabas step up. And they're in verse 12, one verse, their testimony. All they spoke about was what God had done while they were on that first missionary journey. Luke doesn't give us some, any kind of message here. He knows that we've already read it in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. The miracles, the signs and wonders that they did, the fact that because of that, it verified their message. God said, what you're saying is true, and he verified it through signs and wonders. And so they just recapped and told some of the things that had happened while they were on their first missionary journey, and the people were encouraged by it, and they praised God. But then steps up James. James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the disciple, James the Great, was beheaded back in Acts 12. So he's no longer around. James the less, the other one of the twelves, we don't know anything about. He's, he's there, most likely. We don't really know. 
He was alive somewhere, but that's not him either. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James that we have in our Bible. He is referred to as one of the pillars of the church of Jerusalem. In Galatians, Paul says, Paul says that he, along with Peter and John, are part of the pillars of the church of Jerusalem. So he's an important person. So what does he have to say? Look at verse 14. There's a little word play here. It says, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. That word people, in Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, listen to what this verse says. For you are a people, laos is the word there. He's speaking to the Jews there. You're holy to the Lord your God. Out of all of the peoples, plural, that's ethne, Gentiles, the nations. God has called you. Out of all those peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So here's you, God's people, and there's them, the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles. God has called you out of them to be his chosen people, okay? Now, in verse 14, what James is saying here is he's bringing this together. He's saying now that Gentiles can be part of God's people in the same way that the Jews were. I don't know what's going on. I'm back on. Okay. We're back and forth here. Okay. So just as they were God's chosen people, now Gentiles are all included and part of that. They are no longer separate. They're one. In fact, the word saint means God's called out ones. You and I, as saints today, are called out ones. Just like God called out his people, Israel, then, to be separate from them, he is calling us out to be separate from the world. That's our calling. And I love this, just this wordplay. You're now the people of God, all of us together. It's not us and them anymore. There's not two groups here. It's one. He then quotes Amos. A uh, direct quote there from the Septuagint, which is a little bit different than if you were to go back and read it in your Bible, but it's pretty close. It's the same. And he basically says, you know, God was at work back there in the Old Testament scriptures, restoring his people. And he's now in the process of bringing the Gentiles in. And so he, he goes back and he quotes the Old Testament to the Jewish brothers and says, this was all part of God's plan, even back in the time of Amos when he wrote this. No surprise here to God at all. There's a quote, St. Augustine quote. He says, maybe you know this one, I think it's a classic, it's a beautiful way to think about beliefs. And he says this, in, in essentials, unity. The things that are essential, let's be unified on those things. In non-essentials, the things that really aren't essential, Let's have liberty. There's freedom there. There's great freedom in the non-essentials. But in all things, charity, love for each other. 
It's important that we identify what are the essentials, what are the things that we need to agree on and be unified on. The deity of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith alone, the authority of Scripture, those types of things are the, they're the core, they're the essentials, and we can be unified around those things. Other things that we want to hang on to pretty tight sometimes, the non-essential things, you know what? There's a lot of freedom here in Christ to agree and to disagree sometimes, and that's the way we operate in the kingdom. Rapture, pre, mid, post, pan, right? There's all kinds of different beliefs on that. Is, there even, is, is it separate from the second coming? All these end-time beliefs that Christians want to kind of put themselves into, and, and that's fine, that's great. I have mine. But those are non-essentials in the sense of in the end, he's coming back. <laughs> he's going to be here, so we better be ready. That's the essential, right? So there's great freedom in that. So now, they've dealt with the issue of truth. Doctrinal issues have been resolved here, but how are they going to live together in community? That's going to be the real challenge because they're coming together from two different worlds. So look at verses 19 through 30. This is James continuing on now. It is my judgment. So they've given the witnesses, Peter, Paul and Barnabas, James. Now James is stepping up kind of as a leader here and saying this is where we're going. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's not make it hard for them. They're turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to, and he's going to give some things, four things to abstain from. Food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Four things there that'll be, that's important to abstain from. For in the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The people of Israel are still being taught. It's, it's important to them. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. So they composed a letter, and here's what it said, word for word. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that someone out from us, without our authorization, disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And here's the four restated. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered the, the letter. Let's not make it difficult for these Gentiles who are turning to God in verse 19. So we see the focus now shifting from the Jews who are troubling the Gentiles with Judaism and the requirements of law and things like that. Now, Gentiles... Let's not trouble our Jewish brothers. Let's be sensitive 
to what they believe. Let's be sensitive to their belief system in our freedom in Christ. Let's not hurt a brother. That's what it's talking about. They weren't required to adhere to the Mosaic law, but they were required to adhere to the royal law or the law of love. James chapter 2, James speaks of this, this law, this royal law, this law that comes from Jesus, which says, love your brothers. That's the law we need to be following, he says. So keeping that in mind, why avoid these things? Three of them are dietary restrictions. Food sacrificed to idols. In Gentile cities, food was put out before idols. And then after the sacrifice was made, this raw meat was then put in the marketplace and sold for money. So you didn't always know where the meat came from. It could have been used to sacrifice to idols. And in a Jewish mind, that would have been the worst thing. It was forbidden. Leviticus chapter 17 talks about that. That was just one of the things in the Jewish law, forbidden. It would be unthinkable. For a Gentile, they probably wouldn't even think second about it. It was good price, good looking meat, sold. But it would offend my Jewish brothers maybe. And then the issues with blood, draining of blood, no eating blood. Those were requirements in Leviticus chapter 17 about how to prepare the meat from Jewish standards to prepare it to eat. Those are important to them. So make sure that you are in love for your brother now, your Jewish brother, make sure that you do these things, that you abstain from doing these things so it won't hurt your brother. Romans 14, 20 says, all food is clean. We have freedom to eat a variety of things. However, but it's wrong to eat clean, it's wrong to eat anything that causes a brother to stumble. So I have freedom in Christ to eat anything but at the same time, considering if, if by what I'm eating I'm hurting my brother, causing them to stumble, offending them, then you know what? I can go a meal here without it. I can put that aside and go, that person's more important than my meal at this time. And that's what he's talking about. So those dietary restrictions, but then he adds, avoid sexual immorality. The Old Testament law, a lot of the Old Testament law, some of the ceremonial and civil things were done away with in Christ. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the great high priest. A lot of the dietary restrictions were not necessary anymore because he had said they're clean. But the moral laws that were contained in the Old Testament were based upon the character of God and those things never change. Thou shalt not kill, why? That didn't go away, by the way. That's based on God's moral character. He's the creator. Thou shalt not steal, etc. So not all of the Old Testament law went away. Portions of it did in Christ. He fulfilled those things. But a lot of those, some of those laws pertaining to morality stay, and they are universal. This is one of them, sexual immorality. This is just part of the practices of the pagan culture that the Gentiles were coming out of. And it was offensive to God. You know, he'd been talking about things that could offend your Jewish brothers. Now he says, this is offensive not only to my Jewish brothers, but sexual immorality offends God. 
Because God is a God of holiness. God is a God of purity. That is his moral character. And so stop doing that. Avoid that. Liberty is never an excuse for license. We have freedom in Christ. We're saved by grace. We're not bound by law. It's not about legalism and following rules. On the other hand, kind of like Tevia. On the other hand, just because we're free to do what, by God's grace, to do these things, we're never free to sin. We're never free to ignore God's laws that apply to us. There's no license here. So there's this wonderful balance that we need to live in between legalism and license. Don't get caught up in either one is the balance, and that's the proper one. Gospel community with each other, but he also mentions gospel community with the Holy Spirit in verse 28. This is such a broad verse. It says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. When we know Christ, when we come together in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we follow his word, when we pray together, there's the leading of the Holy Spirit in that. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. The Holy Spirit's right there with us. He is our paraclete coming alongside of us. And it's this beautiful thing that happened as they were meeting, as they were discussing, as they were praying, as they were trusting the Holy Spirit, they were led by the Holy Spirit. And there it is. And they had community with the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful practice. In conclusion today, as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want to leave you with three words. Well, there's going to be more than three, but three words to think about. It is finished. Jesus said those words on the cross because for him it was finished. What he had come to do by taking our sins to the cross and bearing our sins for us was complete. It is finished, but I want you to think of it in relationship to yourself. If you have not received Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, those words, it is finished, is your invitation. Everything is done. All you have to do is receive it by faith. It is finished. Please consider that today if you have not already received Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer today, it is finished. Think about what those words mean to you. Think about the fact that Jesus Christ did everything God required for you and me. It's done. What we need to do is put our faith and our trust in him. Lean on the Holy Spirit. Follow the Holy Spirit in our lives. And not try to earn favor with him. It's a done deal. And as we come to the table and remember that this morning, I just hope that that really grabs your heart and reality. Amen.